0: At the body of Christ here, that um, Lord, there's there's um, wonderful things that are taking place, uh, opportunities for us to gather as a church and uh, to fellowship, and I thank you for tonight that we're here, and the kids are are uh, learning great lessons and the youth, the middle schoolers, and the high schoolers. We pray that you touch their hearts and, and bless them. And Lord, us in this sanctuary, as we cover these two chapters, I pray that we would be attentive, that, Lord, that uh, we know that you desire to speak to us, uh, to bless us here tonight and uh, with your word, and you would do just that. Help us to make application and to have clarity and understanding. And may we walk out of here, Lord, knowing that you want to do so much in our lives. How can it be that we can uh, be ones that are considered mighty men and women for you. So, Lord, uh, I know that's our desire. That's what uh, we want to be, uh, ones that are used by you, ones that have uh, godly character in our lives. And so, Lord, uh, may we be attentive to to what you say to us tonight concerning these things. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. As you go through the Old Testament, the, the books of Genesis to the book of Esther is that section of the Old Testament that is called the historical books. And you know that Genesis is the book of beginnings, and Uh, first chronicles in the first nine chapters we saw a lot of genealogy and a genealogy would begin with Adam which is a good place to start a genealogy because he was the first man that was created and so we saw the genealogy uh, that was given from Adam to Noah and then after Noah Abraham his genealogy and of course Abraham would receive the the promise of the covenant by the Lord and that covenant would pass through uh, as Abraham's descendants would be the covenant people through his son Isaac and then through his son Jacob Jacob his name being uh, called Israel as we see in Genesis chapter 32 that Lord would change his name from Jacob to Israel which means governed by God we also saw the genealogy of Jacob's sons he had 12 sons who were the patriarchs to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so we've been looking at their genealogy, the, the, the genealogy of Judah and Benjamin and Simeon and Gad and Reuben and the others, and particularly of Levi, because Levi was the priestly tribe. And we know that the direct descendants of Aaron were the priests, and then the different families of the Levites would assist the priests in their ministry in the tabernacle, and then later on in the temple. And going through their genealogy, we also saw that uh, there were all kinds of service that they would do there was no shortage of service that these Levites did. And it reminds us of the church today that there are different gifts, a variety of gifts the Holy Spirit desires to give to us. And there's a, a diversity of ministries to use those gifts. So the Lord desires to gift you and desires to use you in the body of Christ. There's no shortage of service uh, that is in the body of Christ that, um, that all of us can be used. God has a calling for us. He desires to use us in a very wonderful way. So that's what we began to, to discuss as we're going through these genealogies. And we know in the historical books, of course, as you have the books of Moses. When you get to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you see that Moses would lead the children of Israel after being In Egypt for 400 years, he would lead them out of Egypt, they would come to the mountain of God, they would receive the covenant from the Lord, and there they built the tabernacle, the Levitical priesthood was established, and they were prepared as a nation with the civil law and the ceremonial laws the religious laws. And even though it took them 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, eventually they would go into the wilderness. Now we know that Moses are into the promised land. Moses did not go into the promised land. It was Joshua, as you then go into the book of Joshua, would lead them in as they crossed the Jordan River. And the book of Joshua is such an incredible book, a wonderful book, because it's a book of victory. The the children of Israel at that time had faith. Uh, They were obedient to the Lord. Uh, They were driving out the Canaanites. They had a great victory in the land, and and then the land was divided up according to their allotments that each tribe got, except for the tribe of Levi. They were given the different cities that the Levites would live in. And so that's the book of Joshua. But at the end of the book of Joshua, you see that something happens. And Joshua, he would address the house of Israel, the children of of Israel, and, and he would say to them that, that some of you are collecting idols. And uh, he warned them. And he said, you need to choose this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's the way that the book of Joshua ends. And then you go into the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is the opposite of Joshua in that Joshua is a book of victory. The book of Judges is a book of defeat. And the theme of the book of Judges was they did what was right in their own eyes. And they ignored the warning of the Lord not to worship those Canaanite gods. And we know that that generation after Joshua, they forgot about the Lord. They forgot about the wonderful works of the Lord. They began to serve the Canaanite gods, and then they would find themselves in bondage. This Sunday, as we're going to look at Paul the Apostle, he's going to address the Jews there in the synagogue on his first missionary journey, and he's going to give a history of uh, the Jews, kind of what I'm doing uh, right now. And um, he talks about that the judges lasted for a period of 450 years. So in the days of the judges, it was just this cycle is what it was uh, of them rebelling against the Lord. Uh, they were worshiping idols and the Canaanite gods. They found themselves in bondage to somebody, to the Canaanites or the Moabites or the Minyanites or the Philistines. Um, and then they would cry out to the Lord and the Lord would raise up a judge or a deliverer. And you see that um, in the book of Judges. He raised up uh, Ehud that we talked about here in the genealogy. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, He would raise up Deborah in in chapter 4, Gideon in chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Judges. Uh, He would raise up uh, Samson that would go against the, the Philistines. And so these Judges were raised up, but there was this cycle again that they would find themselves in bondage because of their disobedience well after 450 years when you get to first samuel samuel was the last of the judges and the people finally repented from their idol worship but they would come to samuel and they would say we want to have a king ruling over us and it was samuel that was brokenhearted over that and he prayed about it and the lord says samuel they haven't rejected you they've rejected me and you see the lord wanted them to be ruled by him, Israel, governed by God. That's what the name Israel means. And he desired for them to obey him concerning the ceremonial laws, the civil laws. And he said, I'll bless you. That was a covenant that he made with his people there at Mount Sinai. And when the other nations saw that they were being blessed and protected by the true and the living God, then it would be a light to them and a witness to them. And then they would turn to the true and the living God. And it was sad because when they said, we want to be like the other nations, it would break the heart of Samuel and break the heart of God. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They rejected me is what they have. I wanted them to be Israel. I wanted to truly govern over them. And so it was Saul from the tribe of Benjamin who was uh, anointed as the first king of Israel. And as you go through 1 Samuel, you'll see that he would start out very well he was one that uh, was humble at first. He, he seemed to be hesitant at first uh, in receiving that calling of being the king. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. And um, he started out well, as I said. He would also, as he started out being humble, he had a victory in that he would go to Jabesh Gilead that was on the east side of the Jordan River, and he would free them from the Ammonites who are wanting to come in and do war against them and to destroy them. So he started out well, and we read that uh, as you go through 1 Samuel, but something happened to Saul. Something happened to him to where he turned inwardly, and he became focused on himself he wanted to be exalted before the people uh, he was disobedient to the lord unfaithful to the lord he offered uh, unlawful sacrifices he did not obey the lord in going and destroying all of the amalekites so in first samuel chapter 15 you see that samuel comes to saul and he says saul that god has rejected you and he's going to give the kingdom to another and that is a man after god's own heart Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, you see that Samuel would go to the house of Jesse and anoint David as the new king of Israel. Now, David at that time is only about 13 years old. He's even too young to be in the army of Israel because chapter 17 is where he would go up against Goliath and kill Goliath. And he's bringing food to his brothers that were in the army, but he was too young. So he was anointed king when he's about 13 years old, 15 years old, somewhere in that age. And for years, he was being pursued by Saul, you know, after he would kill Goliath there in the Valley of Elah. And he at first was uh, Samuel's armor bearer. He ministered to, I mean, Saul's armor bearer. He ministered to Saul with music. But Saul had a distressing spirit. And as the hand of God was on David as a young man, We know that as David would go out to war with Saul against the Philistines, and as they were coming back, um, the women of the cities of Israel would sing that song, that Saul has killed his thousand, but David is ten thousands. And Saul did not like that, so he became very jealous and bitter of David. And you know how the rest of 1 Samuel goes, that it was uh, Saul that pursued David out in the wilderness trying to kill him. So here is Saul. He's full of envy. He's full of bitterness. He was self-focused. He wanted himself to be exalted. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Hey, don't reject me. Bless me before the people. You know, I want to look good before the people. He set up a monument of himself there on Mount Carmel. He did all those things, and and he kept getting worse and worse, uh, that is spiritually and further away from the Lord to where we see at the end of 1 Samuel, what happens is reiterated now in chapter 10 of 1 Chronicles. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab uh, Abed- and Mount Kishua, Saul's sons. And you know the story there at the end of 1 Samuel, how... It was Saul that a man it was full of fear and bitterness and envy. And he's going to war against the Philistines. And you see what happened in all those years that he was pursuing David was the Philistines got stronger because Saul did not um, take heed to, to going against the Philistines. He neglected his responsibility in keeping the nation safe from the Philistines. So the Philistines got stronger, and they got stronger, and they would come into Israel. And as you read First Samuel, you see that they were occupying certain areas of Israel to where at the end, Finally, Saul has to do something because they are deep into Israel's territory. I mean, here are the Philistines that are along the coast down by Egypt, which today in that area is Gaza. They occupied that area, and they were clear up north in the country by the Jezreel Valley, and thereby there by Mount, uh, Mount Gilboa, which is way over towards the east side of the country, almost by the Jordan River. So the Philistines had penetrated deep into Israel. Saul goes to war uh, against them and his sons, and they ended up being killed on that mountain. And that's how 1 Samuel ends. There's a very important lesson that we saw in going through those chapters uh, looking at Saul's life. He died a very bitter, angry, fearful, jealous individual in a very tragic way. He neglected his responsibilities Uh, of being a godly man and being a leader of the nation and listen at any time that our hearts aren't right with the lord that if there's envy there's jealousy there's bitterness there's there's anger and malice towards another you're not going to be the man or woman that god wants you to be and you're not going to be able to do those things that god would have you to do So here is Saul, he he dies and it tells about his death, verse 3, the battle as he's there on Mount Gilboa uh, became fierce against Saul and the archers hit him and he was wounded by the archers. And then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me uh, through with it lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not for he was greatly afraid, therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. So Saul and his three sons died, and all his house died together. So Saul is injured. Um, He he tells his armor-bearer, hey, finish me off. I don't want to fall into the hands of these uncircumcised men because they would torture him. And that was a great fear uh, back in that time, that if you were captured, you would be tortured greatly. Hey, armor-bearer, will you finish me off? And he wouldn't do it. So Saul falls on his sword. And here in the text, it matches what the end of 1 Samuel tells us, that Saul would die. But in the first chapter of 2 Samuel, we see that there's a little bit of information that is given to us, or a little bit different account, and it's simply this. That as uh, David was waiting to hear news about Saul, that an Amalekite comes to David and says, Here is Saul's crown and his bracelet because this is what happened when saul was there and fell on his sword he was still alive so he asked me to kill him and i killed him and and david uh you know, was one that um, would end up executing that Amalekite because he did that. He says, Your own testimony has, you know, made you guilty. How is it that you could touch the Lord's anointed? So, was it the Amalekite that didn't end up actually killing Saul, or was he dead when the Amalekite got there? We don't know for sure. It could have been, possibly, that the Amalekite came to David and he said, Hey, I finished Saul off because he thought he would be rewarded for that. He thought, hey, David has been harassed and chased and pursued by Saul for all these years. I'll just tell, you know, David that I did him in. And David will reward me. Well, David didn't reward him. David ended up executing him. And you see, one of the things that we need to remember, that if we think that we are to, to assassinate somebody, assassinate, character assassination, do somebody in. Kill them with words. They try to look good before people. God is not going to honor that. And that's not the way that we as Christians are to be. So here we know that Saul would end up dying in his sons on Mount Gilboa. And we know that verse 7 goes on to tell us, And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that they had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So after the death of Saul, this was a very, very dark time in Israel. The Philistines are occupying most of Israel, the heart of Israel, and their cities. And the people are fleeing most of them to the east side of the Jordan River. In verse 8, so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they stripped him and took his head and his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among the people and then they put his armor in the temple of their gods and fastened his head in the temple of dagog what had happened is they they took saul's head they put it in that temple of dagog you remember dagog was the fish god in first samuel chapter four when the philistines captured the ark of the covenant they took the ark of the covenant they put it in the temple of dagog and you recall the story that the philistines came into the temple the next day to worship dagog the fish god, and he had fallen over. So they put him back up, and the next day they came in, and Dagon had fallen over again. And, you know, his fins were broken and his, you know, and all of that. And they said, something's fishy here. So what they did is they took the Ark of the Covenant. They said, it's got to go. And they sent it throughout their cities of the Philistines. And wherever the Ark of the Covenant went, God, you know, would plague the people. So that was the god that they were worshiping, the fish god, um, Dagon. And that's where, um, the, um, anyway, that's where Saul's head ended up. And they took his body and they pinned his body on the wall of Beth Shemesh, we know that from uh, Second Samuel. and what happens is is Here are, verse 11, all at Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines had done to Saul, and all the valiant men arose and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his son, and they brought them to Jabesh and buried their bones under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. So Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium for guidance. And he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he killed him, and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. So what happens is because Saul, in the beginning of his reign, had saved the, the people of Jabesh-Gilead, those men came to, uh, to Beth Shemesh. You can go to Beth Shemesh today. It was actually one of the cities of the Decapolis during the days of Jesus, and it was a Roman city. And you go through these fascinating ruins of Beth Shemesh, but then the ancient city that was existing at this time, it, it's a tell. And, um, and you can walk on top of the tell, and you look to the west and you see Mount Gilboa where he died, not far. And then you see the stream that's down below in the valley where Gideon and his men drank from that stream. And then you look over to the east and you see where Jabesh Gilead was just right on the other side of the Jordan River. So these men come over and they they take Saul and his sons and give them a proper barrier. But we see again that Saul died a very tragic death because he was one that was unfaithful to the Lord, disobedient to the Lord, and he focused on himself, and um, and he, he died in a very tragic way, and his life ended in a very tragic way. And so now David is made the king in chapter 11. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and be ruler over my people Israel. And therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. So as we look at chapter 11 here, we see that uh, david becomes the king and for the first seven years david only ruled over the tribe of judah he's ruling in hebron and then as he is doing that the rest of israel the other 11 tribes were following after the house of saul not all of saul's sons were killed on mount gilboa there was ishobeth and ishobeth was ruling at that time but over time, the house of David got stronger and the house of Saul got weaker. 2 Samuel chapter 4, Ishobeth ends up being murdered. And so the elders of Israel come to David there in Hebron and they say, Listen, we realize that God has called you to shepherd Israel to be the ruler over Israel. You are the one, even when Saul was king, that was leading Israel out and bringing them in. It's obvious what they're saying, that God has called you to lead us, and so they made him king, and David would be king over all of Israel for the next 33 years. And so here, as they recognize, David, you are the one that God has called. We see that. I think there's an important principle in that, and that is if the Lord calls you to lead in ministry or you know, when it comes to uh, the church or being a leader in, in your home, That it should be obvious to others. That God is doing that work in you. Hey, I can see that God's hand is on that man, on that woman. And they're becoming a leader. God is using them. We can recognize it. You see, as we have leaders here, we only want to recognize and confirm what God is already doing in that person's life. And that's what they're doing here. They're saying, David, we see that you're leading. Even when Saul was king, you're the one that led us in and out. You're the one that was the warrior. You're the one that was doing battle against the Philistines, not Saul. So they made him the king. And we see that David would be one that would continue to defeat his enemies around him. Part of those enemies, we read in verse 4, And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jabez, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. But the inhabitants of Jabez said to David, You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. So David, as he is beginning to defeat his enemies, it's interesting that Jerusalem at that time, this is over 400 years after Joshua had come into the, the promised land. And you recall that God told Joshua drive out the inhabitants, but we also know that they did not completely drive out the Canaanites. And part of one of the tribes of the Canaanites was the Jebusites. And they ruled, they had that, that city, uh, Jabez, right there on Mount Moriah, which is known as Jerusalem. And it's interesting, because when you think about it, when the children of Israel were to come into the Promised Land, the Lord said, I'm going to appoint One place, which is going to be the center of worship. You're not just going to go and sacrifice anywhere, like the Canaanites that would go up on the hills and in the wooded areas and in the high places. But you're going to sacrifice at the appointed place. And so the tabernacle where they did the sacrifices would come and, and would be at certain places. It was not Shiloh for a while. And, and then it would go um, to to other places. But that's where they would sacrifice. But God would pick Jerusalem to be the center of worship, as Solomon would build a temple there, and that's where the temple would be, and worship would be there, but for those 400 years that when they first came into the land, the children of Israel did not take Jerusalem, and the reason was, is because it's on a hill, it, it, it was hard for them to take, they took all the land around Mount Moriah, but they did not take the city of Jebus. so they said, David, you think you're so tough? Come and get us if you think you can. They thought that they could not be defeated. They thought that we'll be safe here, you know, in this walled city. And so um, it was enemy territory. It would be difficult to take. And they uh, would usher that that, um, that challenge that David says, Okay, in verse 6, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, went up first and became chief then David dwelt in a stronghold, therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from the Milo to the surrounding area. Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. So they said, you can't come in here. You can't come here. And you see, that's what the enemy will say to you and to me. The enemy will say to you and to me you can't do that you can't minister there you can't talk to that person about Jesus and we need to remember that Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 tells us that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us I love to be around Christians that say you know what God has put these things on our heart or put this thing on our hearts so let's do it not well it's too hard it is too difficult we're going to have to put a lot of energy into doing this and a lot of work. I love being around Christians that say, you know, God has told us. He's put it on our hearts. We know it and have the faith that God is going to work as we go and do battle, as, as we do what it is that he's called us to do. So David turns to his men in this case and he says, listen, the first one who finds a way into the city is going to be my general. And of course, we know from 2 Samuel chapter 5 that was Joab. Joab, who was the nephew of David, born to his sister Zeruiah. And Joab, what he did was he found this water shaft that he climbed up uh, and he opened up the water shaft that was in the city. Now, when you go to the city of David today, just south of where the Temple Mount was, the city of David where David first lived, and, and that city of David would eventually grow, and it would become Jerusalem, but it was fairly small, and um, in that area also was the Pool of Siloam, and, and uh, Hezekiah would later on build a tunnel, and you can go through Hezekiah's tunnel through there. And recently, as they've been doing a lot of excavations down there, that they found that shaft that they believe that Joab would climb up is 40 feet high. And how he climbed up there, they're not sure, but he would climb up that shaft and he would get into the city of Jabus, and he would, you know, you know, uh, do battle and get to the gate and open up the gate where the rest of the troops would come in. So Joab would end up being the general for David, for many, many years, and um, we read about him, of course, quite a bit in Second Samuel. But it says here that David went on to become great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. David was great. Why? He was great only because the Lord of hosts was with him. The Lord was with him. You see, as we go through the rest of this chapter here, we got a lot more names here, and we're not going to go through all the names but what we have listed in this chapter is david's mighty men and what we're going to see here as we continue on and look at the mighty men of david that we're going to see eight characteristics or eight truths eight principles that made these guys mighty men and if they are applied in our lives then we can become mighty men and women for god as well so if you're a note taker i think it might be worth jotting down these eight things that we're going to look at Here for the next few moments concerning david's mighty men that made them great these characteristics that made them great that if we apply it in our lives make an application that we too can become mighty men and women for god and i think that you'll find this to be interesting i i hope that it's a blessing to you and helps you in your walk with the lord so we see that david's mighty men being listed verse 10 now these were the heads of the mighty men who david had who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom with all israel to make him king according to the word of the lord concerning israel now before we get into these eight things that that we see characterizing the the lives of these mighty men uh, that made them great uh it's interesting that remember in our that is first samuel chapter 22 that david he's running from saul and and all of a sudden these these men start to join David. And, and in 1 Samuel chapter 22, you have the first mention of David's mighty men. And there were 400 men that gathered to David that would be with David as Saul was pursuing him. Later on, it would change to 600 men. But it's interesting, when you read 1 Samuel chapter 22, it tells us about these 400 men that are mighty men for David. And it says that they were the ones that were in debt, discontent, and distressed. That was the qualification of being David's mighty man. You were in debt, you were discontent, and you were distressed. But I think it's important for us to stop and consider that. Because you see, we need to have those characteristics in our lives if we want to, to first of all, be a mighty man and woman of God that belongs to the army of the son of David, the greater than David, Jesus Christ. You see, it's real important that we realize spiritually that we're in debt. We're in debt to sin, aren't we? We're in debt to sin. All of us have sin, and the wages of sin is death. And that's the gospel message. That there is a debt for sin that you and I could not pay. Trying to become righteous, trying to to keep the law, because we know that the New Testament comes along and tells us that we're all lawbreakers, that all of us are sinners. And you see, the law wasn't given so that we can try to keep the law. The law was given to show us that we're lawbreakers, that we're not holy, that we can't keep it, that we're all guilty before the Lord. And and so that sin has separated us from God. There's a debt there that you and I can't pay. It can't be paid with all the gold and silver of the world. And as Peter comes along and says that Jesus Christ has redeemed us, and that word redeemed means to be purchased We have been purchased with the precious blood of the Lamb, not with corruptible things such as gold and silver. So Jesus, he paid our debt on Calvary's cross. He went to the cross and he died for our sins. He redeemed us, purchased us to himself. We cannot earn our way to heaven. Salvation is a free gift that comes by faith and trust in him and surrendering your heart to him. So there's a debt that is there, and Jesus came and paid that debt. He has provided forgiveness of sin for you and for me. So for us to be a, a mighty man or woman for God, first of all, we've got to realize that we're in debt, in need of Jesus' payment on the cross, that he made that payment and receive it. Discontent is the second thing that they were. And you see, you and I need to be discontent. The world doesn't satisfy. And my hope and prayer is that all of us would realize... There is no hope in this world. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And our fulfillment and satisfaction and, and it is found in a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're hoping to find fulfillment and satisfaction ultimately in the world, you're not going to find it. You're going to end up being empty. You might find temporary fulfillment and satisfaction and pleasure and happiness but you're going to find yourself being empty and unfulfilled, and you're going to find yourself hungering and thirsting. It was Jesus that said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be full. And Jesus would say, Come to me and drink. Come to me and drink, and out of your belly will flow torrents of living water. He said, Whoever eats and drinks of me will never hunger and thirst again. I pray that our contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment and real joy and purpose in life is because we have an intimate, close relationship with Jesus Christ. Be discontent with this world. This world is messed up, and it's getting worse, and it's going to get worse. And we know that the consummation of this world is going to be very, very ugly and very, very bad before the return of the Lord but you and I, we belong to another kingdom, and that is Jesus Christ. The third thing, distressed. In other words, that that we need to realize that Jesus, he rescued us. He's the one, I love the song that we're singing, that that we cried out to the Lord to be rescued, and he heard our cry. And Jesus has rescued us. He is our Savior. He has rescued us from hell and eternal damnation. So we see here that those were the mighty men of David as you read 1 Samuel chapter 22. And now we start to get specific of who they are in, in verse 11. And this is the number of the mighty men who David had Jeshobim, the son of Hakmonite, the chief of the captains. And he lifted up his spear against 300 killed by him at one time. So David had three main mighty men. There's a list of these guys also, and they're spoken of in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And Jeos B.M. was also called, as you look at Second Samuel chapter 23, verse 8, he was also known as Adino. And it tells us, as it did here, that he lifted up his spear or his sword and he ended up killing 300 of the enemy. Here's the first characteristic and the first principle, the first truth for you and for me if we want to be a mighty man or woman for God. Realize that Paul would write in Second or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, that I desire, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. You want to be a mighty man or woman for God? Then you be a man or woman of prayer. Lift up prayer to the Lord. Be one that is worshiping the Lord. You are a, a one that... Prayer is is a priority in your life, and I hope that is. Prayer is so important in the life of a Christian. We're seeing that very clearly, aren't we, in the book of Acts? And not only is it important in the life of a Christian, but it is very important in the life of a church as well. I'm reminded of lifting up holy hands. I'm reminded of the story that we have of Moses. You know the story of Moses as Joshua's down in the valley doing battle against the Amalekites, and Moses was lifting up his hands up there on the hill, and as long as Moses' hands were lifted up, they were having victory, but then his arms became tired, and his arms would go down, and then the Amalekites were winning, and Moses would lift his arms up, and Joshua and the children of Israel were winning, but then they got heavy again, and the Amalekites would win, and and her and Aaron saw that so they came over stood by Moses one on his left one on his right and they lifted up his arms and it's just a picture of prevailing prayer how we have victory because we are ones that we are committed to prayer individually but also corporately as well I hope that we together as a church Make that a priority in our lives, in the life of this church as well. And that we are ones that we're praying together, that we are making it a priority. I hope that you're praying for me because I need your prayers. I need your prayers to pastor this church, the decisions that need to be made, the leadership here. Please pray for me and my family. Pray for us here that are serving at Calvary Chapel, for the children's ministry teachers, and for the nursery workers, all who serve. And we want to pray for you and your family, and may you be ones that are praying for each other. Take that directory, and we're ones that are given over to prayer. So that's one of the, the principles and truths that, that should be worked out in our lives to be a mighty man or woman of God. And then we read in verse 12, After him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Eohite, who is one of the three mighty men. So how would you like to have that name, Dodo? But we see here that his son was definitely Eleazar, one of three mighty men. And we know, again, from 2 Samuel chapter 23, it tells us, that when he went to battle, that he defeated many of the enemies at one time, and he had the sword, and after that battle, he had gripped that sword so tight that he couldn't let go. You know, have you ever gripped something so tight that, you know, your your hand is all cramped up and you can hardly let go of it? That's what happened. He had the sword that was so tight, it stuck to his hand is what the scripture says. Listen, you want to be a mighty man or woman of God? then you be one that you're in the Word of God. Because one of the things that the kids are going to learn, and as we learn from Ephesians chapter 6, uh, the armor of God, that's the theme for Vacation Bible School. Part of the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You be not only a man or woman of prayer, but you be a man or woman of the Word of God. It is so important that we be grounded in the Word of God, and you guys know that. Otherwise, I don't think you'd be here on this Wednesday night going through First Chronicles. That we have the word of God that is in our hearts, that we're applying it in our lives, that, that we have that word of God that's very important to you and to me. And here is Eleazar, the sword stuck to his hand. It reminds me a little bit of Nehemiah. Here they are doing the work of the Lord and have a sword in one hand and a trial in the other, doing the work of the Lord and being men also of the word of God. So keep growing in the Word of God. So that's the second uh, principle, truth, characteristics that should be in our lives as we want to be mighty men and women for God. We also see that concerning Eleazar, now he was with David at Damium, where there was Philistines were gathered for battle and there was a piece of ground full of barley so the people fled from the Philistines but they stationed themselves in the middle of that field, defended it and killed the Philistines so the Lord brought a about a great victory so we see another characteristic here and that is thirdly that we see that uh, here's eliezer and david they're in this this field full of barley and they're protecting it they're guarding it it's interesting that the third mighty man is not listed here he is listed in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and his name was Shammah. And we see what made him a mighty man was that he was told to guard a field full of beans, full of lentils. Now, they had 600 guys that had to feed them. So, you know, crops were important. So here is Shammah. He was told that you're to stay here, and you're to guard this field of lentils. And somebody cries out, the Philistines are coming. And he does battle, and he kills all the Philistines. The Lord looked down at Shammah because he had heard the command of the king say, guard this field of beings. And he stationed himself there, and the Lord honored that and gave him great victory, just as we see Eleazar and David, that they stationed themselves there in that field, and they did battle against the enemy. The scripture tells us that we're to be steadfast in the faith. Make sure that you are standing fast in the faith. And how do you do that? You go back to number two that you have in your notes. Be a man or woman of the word of God. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as you are in the word of God and you know the word of God and you're applying the word of God, you can stand fast in the faith. In other words, this is what the king has told me. How I am to live and what I am to do. And I'm going to station myself here. I'm going to plant myself in the faith. And I'm going to stand on his promises. And I'm going to believe in his word. And I'm going to be a man and woman of the word. And that's what's going to help you to stand fast in the faith. So that's number three as we go down this list of of what makes us mighty men and women of God. First of all, being men and women of prayer. Second of all, of the word. And thirdly, to stand fast in the faith. And then in verse 15, as we continue, now three of the 30 chief men went down to the rock to David into the cave of Adullam, and the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. And David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate, In verse 18, so the three broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but poured it out to the ground. And he said, Far be it from me, O my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who have put their lives in jeopardy? For at the risk of their lives they brought it, therefore he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. So here is Adino, Eleazar. Here is Shammah. They're in the cave of Adullam with David. The Philistines are down below in the valley, and they're at Bethlehem. Now remember that David grew up in Bethlehem. And here is David. He's saying, oh, how I long for a drink of water from the well that's there at the gate of Bethlehem. Pi a well that he drank from many, many, many times as he grew up in Bethlehem. On, on those days particularly he, when it was hot and that fresh water that he would draw from that well. And you know how it is when you're thirsty and summer's coming. You're working out in the yard or you're taking a hike and you're thirsty and you want water so badly. This is what I picture David. He's in that cave. Oh, I long to have some of that water. I long for that. I remember... The last time when I was in southern Sudan, we had water that was from a freshwater well, but it didn't taste good. And the first day that we were there, it's January, and it was 106 degrees. And it was warm water, and it was yucky water. And I remember for those two and a half weeks thinking how I longed just to have a big gulf from, you know, a big slushy or something, it's just some ice water, how I longed for that, and yet I couldn't have it. And here's David, he can't have it because the, the Philistines are down in the valley below. And here is his three mighty men, they hear that. And that brings us to number four. You see, not only do we become men and women of prayer and of the word and stand fast in the faith, but if you want to be mighty in the Lord, then know the heart and the desire of the Lord. Because here were these guys, they heard the heart and knew the desire of David. David is longing for some water. <laughs> We're going to go and get it. Because that's what the king wants. That's what David wants. To be a mighty man of God, a mighty woman of God. Know the heart and the desire of God. You see, not only does he know our heart, but he desires for us to know his heart. And you see, we can't fully understand and comprehend. God, I understand that, but he does want us to know something of his heart and his desire that he has for us. Oh, how I long to refresh them, him or her, to fill them with my spirit, to use them in a mighty way, to know the heart and desire of God. So these guys take off. And I just wonder, as the day went on, and David was probably thinking, where are those three guys? Where is Eliezer, Adina? Where is Shammah? And all of a sudden, these three guys come approaching the cave, and, and they come, and they're tattered. I just picture them all tattered and black and blue and bloodied, as David said here. And they present this water to David, and David is so overwhelmed by it that he pours it as an offering to the Lord. He couldn't drink it. Now, sometimes people will read that and they think, what a waste that David did that. But he was giving as an offering to the Lord. He was so touched by what these guys did. You know, it was Paul right before his death. He said, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. It reminds me of Mary in the book of John, in the gospel of John. You know the story how right before Jesus' death on the cross, that she took that costly you know, box of, of ointment And she broke the box and anointed Jesus for his burial. And it was Judas that spoke up and said, what a waste. But you see, she did it as an act of worship. David poured out the water because he was so overwhelmed by what his friend had done. He said, I can't drink this. The sacrifice, the service that they've done for me. Paul's saying, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. He was dedicated to the Lord. You see, there are people that are going to come to you and to me and say, what a waste. You go to church on Wednesday night? You worship the Lord? You're you're serious about serving the Lord? Man, you're missing out on what the world might have to offer you. What the world, you know, the fun and entertainment of the world or the pleasures of the world. People might come to you as you are pouring yourself out as a drink offering unto the Lord. That is, you're dedicated to Him and your service and worship to Him. But know that others will come along and say, what a waste. And Jesus would say to those disciples that, you know, and Judas that were rebuking Mary, leave her alone. She's doing this as an act of worship for me. You continue to worship the Lord. You continue to pour yourself out to the Lord in service and worship to him. So we see this, this incredible story in verse 20. Ebiashar, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three. He had lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. And of the three, he was more honored than the other two men. Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain the first three. I mean, these guys were mighty warriors. It's amazing. Verse 22, Ben-Aniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from um, kab and he had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab, and he also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. So Ben-Aniah here, he's not even one of the three main guys, but look at him. He ends up killing two lion-like men. What does that mean? I don't know. Did they have a face of a lion? I don't know, but I think as you think of a lion, they they were fierce, they're mighty, they're strong. You see lions in Africa, and they had lions actually in in this part of the world at this time, because David killed lions and bears as he was a shepherd. We know that from 1 Samuel. But he killed two lion-like guys, two guys that were fierce, and this guy, he jumps down into a pit on a snowy day, and he also kills a lion there. Number six. The lion is the symbol of Satan, isn't it? He's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And for you and I to be mighty in the Lord, we need to put on the whole armor of God to do spiritual battle, just as we've been talking about. And just as we're going to teach your kids at Vacation Bible School. Because Satan is going to do battle with us. And he's looking to pounce on you and me. So we need to put on the whole armor of God. And Benaniah, he he did that, but also, verse 23, he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits tall. In the Egyptian's hand there was a spear like a weaver's beam. And he went down to him with his staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. And these things Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada did, did and won a name among the three mighty men. So this guy also... Kills an Egyptian, a giant, seven and a half feet tall. Egypt is a picture of the world. And to be mighty in the Lord, listen, don't let the world defeat you. Don't let the world defeat you and bring you down. The children of Israel, when they came out of the promised land, they were always wanting to go back to the world, to Egypt. You and I belong to another world. And the world will get us down and will bring us down and do us in. But as we do battle, as we are in this world, don't let the world defeat you. Again, you trust in the Lord, you be a man and woman of prayer, of the Word, stand fast in the faith, that you're pouring out your life in devotion to the Lord, and that you are one, that you are uh, putting on the whole armor of God. And then you're going to have victory over the world as you do that. But then you see in verse 26 to the end of the chapter, you see the names of David's mighty men. Now, again, I'm not going to take the time to read all of these names. The mighty warriors were, and then they are named here through the end of the chapter. But there's one that I want to point out to you, and then we're going to end just a couple minutes here. In verse 41, who's listed? Uriah the Hittite. Remember Uriah? The husband of Bathsheba. You know the story. Second Samuel chapter 11 David should have been out to war with his men. It's springtime. They're out to war. David says, I'm going to stay behind. You guys go ahead and go out to war. Now, to be one of David's mighty men was something that, that young you know, men of Israel desired to be at that time. To be one of David's mighty men was a great honor. And one of the privileges is they would live around David's palace. And so here was Uriah, one of David's mighty men. And that's why he was able to go out on his balcony. He says, Bathsheba bathing. He asked for her, and they came back, and they said, David, don't you know who this is? This is Bathsheba. Don't you know the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah? Now, if you do a little bit of digging in 2 Samuel chapter 23, again, the list of the mighty men that are there, you see that Eliam, the father of Bathsheba, was one of David's mighty men. And he is the son of Ahithophel. Who was Ahithophel? Ahithophel was David's trusted adviser. And Ahithophel, the Scripture says in Second Samuel, they, his counsel was like the oracles of God. And David was very, very close to Ahithophel. That Ahithophel, as he David writes in, in Psalm fifty-five, you see Ahithophel got angry at David and bitter towards David. And when Absalom, David's son, tried to take the throne away from him, Ahithophel, defected from David, went to side with Absalom and said to Absalom, let me go after David this night and I will go and kill him. That's how bitter Ahithophel was. And David was brokenhearted over that. And he writes about it in Psalm 55. He said, if it was, you know, somebody else, then it wouldn't have bothered me, essentially, what he says, but it was my companion, my equal. We walked together in, in the throng uh, of the Lord. That is, we went to the house of the Lord. We, we took sweet counsel together. And David, I think, was closer to Ahithophel than anybody, and that includes Jonathan. And he was brokenhearted over that. And he went through a lot of pain because Ahithophel was wanted to kill him. And he says, oh, you know, we took sweet counsel together. And I picture Ahithophel and David up at night, and David's just sharing his heart in Ahithophel as he spoke like the oracles of God. That's how close David was to him. David, don't you know who this is? This is Bathsheba. This is the daughter of one of your mighty men. She's married to also one of your mighty men, Uriah. And she is the granddaughter of Ahithophel, your best friend, your trusted advisor. And David said, I don't care. I want her. That's how powerful lust is. And I think that David at that time was prideful. Because he thought, I've defeated my enemies. I'll let the guys go to battle. <laughs> I'm about 50 years old. I've been there. I've done that. I don't need to go. Hey, I'll have Bathsheba send her back home. And that's the end of it. Nobody will ever know. Nobody needs to know. I'm the king. She comes back. Of course, she's pregnant. He sends for Uriah. Hey, Uriah, you need to go home. Spend some time with your wife. Everything will be okay. Okay. You know what? You've been out in the field for a while. Go and have a nice evening. I'll even send some food and some wine and stuff so you can have a nice romantic evening. Didn't happen. What did Uriah did? He slept outside. He said, how can I do this when my brethren is out there doing battle? He gives us the last characteristic, number eight. Be loyal to your brethren like Uriah was. You'd be a man and woman of integrity and loyalty. Loyalty to the Lord and to each other. David, he was a man after God's own heart, but he failed miserably during that time that he was sinning with Bathsheba. But Uriah was a man of great character and integrity and loyalty. And may that be a part of our lives. May we stand by each other, folks. Our brothers and sisters, being loyal to the Lord and loyal to each other, being men and women of of character, of integrity and honesty, that people will look at us and say, you know what, there's a man of great integrity, a woman of great integrity and character, and they're loyal and they're good. They don't gossip about others. They don't tear them down. They don't sin against others, you know, and and all of this, but they are true and loyal and godly towards others, like Uriah demonstrated that. Eight things for you and I to consider tonight if we want to be mighty men and women for God. So, Father, we thank you for this chapter. We thank you for these things that we just talked about, and, and, Lord, may they be characterized in our lives. And, Lord, I do pray tonight as we close here, I just pray if there's anyone here or listening to this message that if you want to be a mighty man or woman of God, first of all, you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Realize that there's a debt that you cannot pay. It's a debt of sin. Jesus paid that debt for you. And know that the world is no hope for you. Turn to Jesus. Cry out to him for salvation. If you haven't done that, if there's anyone here tonight, you can't save yourself. Today, tonight is the night to give your heart to Jesus Christ. Or you're going to be truly empty and unfulfilled and lost eternally unless you turn to Jesus Christ. That's what the Word of God says. If you've never done that, will you do that right now? You, You pray right where you're sitting. Jesus, I am a sinner. There's a debt there. The wages of it is death. But you came and paid that debt for me. You died for me. And I believe that you are the Son of God. And I now turn to you. And I know that you redeemed me by your blood. That you shed on Calvary's cross. Forgive me of my sins and be my personal Lord and Savior. And I know that you conquered sin and death because you rose again from the grave. You're alive. The world is not my hope. You are, Lord. And you're my savior. And you rescued me. Thank you for hearing my prayer tonight. For all of us that are here.